Maria, welcome to First Up. It's Ratu, Tuesday the 4th of October. Connor Trubridge, ho. Coming up, we'll head to the UK shortly for the latest on the government's U-turn on tax cuts. Meanwhile, National's Deputy Nicola Willis accuses the Prime Minister of political mischief-making by comparing her party's tax policy to the UK Tories' disastrous package. And a Kiwi in Ukraine says the country's defenders appear to have found the weak spot of the Russian invaders. They feel that they've got the advantage, and I suspect that that's, well, it's absolutely right in terms of their counteroffensive, but I think they also know that they've got support coming, and coming in the form of significant weapon systems. Atamaria, welcome to First Up. I'm Nick Trubridge, and again for Nathan Rarity, who's, uh, well, taken on the admirable task of trying to keep the kids occupied through the first week of the school holidays. Uh, we're going to cross now to the UK, where this morning the government has been forced to make a U-turn on its tax cuts. Here to explain all of it is our correspondent, Ali J. Morena. Atamaria, Nick. So... Tell us where this all started, Ali. I've just been watching the television before the show. I mean, the idea was controversial to begin with. It's now, well, they they would phrase it as something else, but it is a U-turn, isn't it? And it's got to be a little bit embarrassing. How did we get here? Okay, here here we go. And you're right, it is very much a U-turn. So last week, um, the new government or the new Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, they announced this mini budget. But if you remember, we couldn't call it a budget or they couldn't call it a budget. Otherwise, it would have had to have gone through a process with the Office for Budget Responsibility. So they called it a fiscal event. Uh, This, though, however, it had a number of quite serious things in it. But the main one that kind of caught the attention was that they announced the top tax rate would be abolished. So at the moment, if you earn over £150,000 a year here, you'll get taxed at 45 pence per pound. And they said that that would be abolished. So no more high tax rates for high earners. And this this did not go down well. So that there were also lots of um, talk about, lots of talk about borrowing money as well. And we saw the pound absolutely crash to near parity with the dollar. And we've had a week, well, it's 10 days now since then, of pretty dire financial news. Uh, The Bank of England had to step in. They released a statement uh, saying they'd buy government bonds at this urgent pace. And that kind of slightly steadied the markets, but it still didn't look very good. We had bad news about pensions as well. And then in the past couple of days, we've seen members of the Conservative Party, so the government party, start to come out and say they didn't support it. And it's some quite big recognisable names. So Michael Gove said he thought it was a bad idea. Just in the past few days, Grant Shapps, who's the former Transport Secretary, so last night and this morning was doing interviews saying he thought the government uh, were being tin-eared he called them as well and people asking where the prime minister was so she didn't do any live interviews for quite a while and then on Thursday she did a round of local radio interviews which were I mean the format is you sit in a recording booth in London and and local radio stations across the country dial in for these kind of five minute uh, interviews and I think the thought was it would maybe be an easier way of dealing with this issue but it's worth a listen because it's quite it's very ruthless they've got Mm. All these questions from listeners across the country uh, and over the weekend it became more and more obvious that this was something that they were going to have to address and address it quite seriously uh, and then as you said this morning this morning is when that statement came out and we've just heard a speech as well 
Yeah, and you mentioned uh, Chancellor Kwarteng there, of course, the Chancellor of Exchequer. Uh, making that speech this morning, addressing delegates at the Conservative Party conference, uh, and, you know, a real, well, it was a PR offensive, really, wasn't it? Trying to frame this, trying to salvage it in, in the best possible light. Uh, you had Liz Trust there trying to keep a smile on her face throughout the whole thing. But what did Mr Kwarteng say exactly? So it was two it was two things. Just up until last night, they were still saying, we're not going to back down on this. This is our policy. Uh, it's going to work. No surrender. And there were all these interviews that was embargoed until this morning. So it really was down to the wire. And then this morning comes around about seven o'clock. There's a news alert saying that this statement is going to come out. And lo and behold, half an hour later, a statement from Kwasi Kwarteng is published. On it, it said, it's clear that the abolition of the 45 tax rate has become a distraction from the overriding mission to tackle the challenges facing our country. Uh, He said, we get it and we have listened. And then just after that, he was on breakfast TV uh, being asked about it, why they've rode back from this policy. And that that was the line. Every question he said, we've listened to people. We've listened. We need to focus on uh, the rest of the budget. This is a distraction. And you're right, just this, just half an hour ago. So it's the Tory party conference in Birmingham at the moment. And lots of of major Conservative Party members there as well. And he has given this speech where he started off by almost making a joke about it, saying, what it went, what a day. He said, it's been tough. We need to focus on the job in hand. Again, he said, moving forward, no more distractions. Mm. Uh, this is, you know, great ideas, that kind of thing. And he's addressed it. He joked about it. And he's, he's yeah. basically kind of saying, I understand. Uh, and we're going to take this back because people, because people don't like it. Yeah, interesting times. Thanks, Ellie. Ellie J there from, uh, well, reporting from the UK on, of course, that U-turn on tax cuts. How late was it? Well, uh, we're just seeing now that some senior cabinet ministers only found out about the decision to make some changes this morning. So, uh, yeah, a last-minute U-turn for sure. Right, we all know the expression, an empty kettle makes the most noise, but new research from Consumer New Zealand has found that a clean kettle makes the least Take from that what you want, metaphorically. I spoke to consumer spokesperson Gemma Rasmussen about what they found out. The kettles come in a whole uh, range of, there are different noises, and, and some are actually marketed to be quieter. But what you may actually find is that your kettle is super noisy because you've got a buildup of lime scale in your kettle. You may have seen it. It's a sort of white marks inside your kettle, and it's actually a buildup of calcium and magnesium. And leaving water sitting in your kettle, that encourages the lime scale to develop. And the reason why this is making your kettle a bit noisier is it's it acts as an insulator. So what it does is it sort of slows down the transfer of heat and so the kettle takes longer to boil and it actually becomes noisier. I guess the question is, like, are, are all kettles born quiet or quietish and they get noisier? Because I swear sometimes you buy a kettle and straight off the bat it's really loud. Yeah, so there is definitely a range in terms when you buy kettles. There is going to be uh, different noise levels depending on how they're built. And that can be a really annoying thing when you're in the store because it's not like you can pop the water in, turn the button on and and give it a go and and see how that is. So, you know, you can look at reviews online and and there may be indicators, you know, of the noise level. But if it does really bother you, you can specifically buy quieter kettles. And 
of course, you've run a test on all of this. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so we um, got rid of the lime scale and then we actually looked at what the sound reduction was. So the sound reduction went from about 79 decibels to 75. It doesn't sound like much, but a 5 decibel drop is actually about 25% quieter. So that could make quite a sizable difference. You know, if you're trying to listen to someone talk or you're trying to watch something on the TV, it really is going to make a a significant difference to, to what you're hearing. Yeah, so I guess you know if I if I go to the shop, I buy a kettle. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not bad when I first plug it in. You know, maybe a little bit of noise, but relatively quiet. And then I don't know a year down the track, it's you know interrupting Coronation Street on a Wednesday night. What should I do? Sure. So to get rid of lime scale, what you need to do is you fill up your kettle equal parts with white vinegar and water. Make sure you don't fill it up too high because you don't want it to bubble up. And the other thing is you could potentially use lemon juice instead of vinegar. So up to you. Use half-half. Then you want to mix the two ingredients together and let it sit in your kettle for about one hour. Then you want to boil it, let it fully cool, and then you want to rinse and refill with water and then repeat the step until the smell of the vinegars or the lemon is sort of cleaned out and then give your kettle a go and, and see how noisy it is. It is 14 minutes past five and you're listening to First Up on RNZ National with me, Nick Trubridge. We're keen for your feedback. Uh, We just heard about kettles. So have you had to deal with lime scale in your kettle? How do you keep your kettle quiet? And um, are you in a space in New Zealand that has, in your opinion, the worst lime scale in the country? Let us know if you think it's at your place. Are we going to have something on alcohol advertising later? Do you think it's time to end alcohol advertising in sport? And uh, yeah, week one of the school holidays, as we mentioned yesterday. So keep your activities, free activities, ideally rolling in. You can text us 2101, tweet us at firstuprnz or email firstup at rnz.co.nz. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at First Up. Right, we are going to head to Japan now, where 50 years of normal relations with their superpower neighbour China are being celebrated. But first, our correspondent in Tokyo, Chris Gilbert, told me about another milestone, one year in office for Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. Yeah, so the Prime Minister, it's been a year of two halves for him, really. Uh, He entered office a year ago after the kind of dismal performance of Prime Minister Suga before him, who is really a a public pincushion for the issues such as the COVID-19 pandemic and the Olympics, the grossly unpopular Olympics here. He should have stepped into the role amidst very high approval ratings and very high cabinet approval ratings as well at the time. And his fortunes a year later have really taken a drastic turn. His disapprovals are now higher than his approvals. Same for his cabinet. And that is really due to a few issues. The first of which is that after the former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was shot and killed a few months ago, Prime Minister Kishida really decided single-handedly to go ahead and hold the state funeral for him. Now, that's a taxpayer-funded state funeral, which was held just last week. And this is not normal in Japan. There's only been one in the last 55 years before this. And so it's not really in keeping with the political culture, and people weren't really on board with it. And Kishida, who was chosen to be the leader of the party, showed that he wasn't really keeping consensus when he was meant to be a man of 
consensus. Another reason is the ongoing revelations of the connections between the LDP, the ruling party here, Kishida's party, and the uh, religious group, the cult, the Unification Church. Uh, Kishida was effectively charged with clearing out the cobwebs in his own party, and he reshuffled cabinet. But still, more and more every day, we're learning about party members who have spoken at Unification Church events or have given or received money from Unification Church. And so that continues to be a ball and chain around him. But really, the overarching thing at the moment is the economy. The yen is very weak uh, against the American dollar. Inflation is up. Japanese businesses usually try and absorb these costs themselves. But now uh, Japanese consumers are finding themselves in the very new position of seeing their, their daily beef bowl prices rise by 50 yen a day or something. And they're not really used to that. And that's directly traceable back in their eyes to the prime minister and his governance. So it's a bit of a choppy water situation for him at the moment. Mm, and I suppose he's been dogged by, like his predecessor, his decision over one big event, i.e. Shinzo Abe's funeral, his predecessor, the decision to carry on with the Tokyo Games, followed by the prolonged issue, I suppose, of the tale of COVID, i.e. high inflation. That's exactly right. The government here effectively still needs to rebound from the pandemic. And that is why the, uh, the Bank of Japan is so reluctant to raise interest rates to battle inflation. Inflation, by the way, is not as bad here as it is in other countries which are raising interest rates like America. It's at 3% compared to 8 or 9% in other countries. But the economy is still needing to recover from the pandemic. We're still coming out of those doldrums. Tourists are meant to come back into the country about eight days from now, but it's extremely late compared to other parts of the world. And so I think uh, the government and Kishida in general is really banking on uh, an influx of dollars to really kick some life into the economy and maybe save his approval ratings. In the meantime, of course, the country's celebrating 50 years of what we call normalised relations with China. Yes, normalized relations and big quotation fingers. I think we can put celebrating in quotation fingers as well. There wasn't much celebration to be had. The leaders of Japan and China and representatives exchanged some messages. But yet normalized relations effectively means that 50 years ago, Japan and China had zero diplomatic relations. And now what has happened is they've kind of turned into very pragmatic and profitable business partners in the Asia-Pacific region. And their relationship is now effectively just wedded in trade. $230 billion just last year traded between them. And uh, really, the future of this relationship is, is really built on securing the supply lines to ensure that that trade continues. Lex Swan events like uh, the pandemic or uh, the conflict in Ukraine really puts big question marks around the security of those supply lines and therefore the security of the stability of the relationship between Japan and China. Another thing is that Japan is finding itself caught between two big powers, its uh, security allegiances to the United States and its business allegiances to China. And as the United States and China be kind of become more competitive in the region, Japan is finding itself in a very awkward position where it has to kind of take one step forward at a time with both and make sure that it remains secure with Russia, North Korea and China all around it, but still, you know, maintains that relationship, which is keeping the two, I guess, civil at the moment. That's Chris Gilbert in Tokyo.
It's just gone 20 minutes past five. I'm Nick Trubridge and you're with First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, we head to the US for the latest on, yes, yet another hurricane. And National's Deputy Nicola Willis accuses the Prime Minister of political mischief-making by comparing her party's policy to the UK Tories' disastrous tax package. Time to check in with the pros from the local democracy reporting programme now. And this morning... We're in Taranaki with Craig Ashworth, and Craig's just been to Wahui for the region's Māori candidates. Yeah, that's right, Nick. Um, Stratford's uh, Wakaurangi Marae, in the dead middle of the region, really. So there were 20 Māori candidates there, uh, going for Māori wards and the general seats, also community boards, and um, looking for appointment to uh, regional council committees. Really, you know, good humoured meeting, not like your usual tense uh, candidate meeting, lots of laughter, really not competitive you know, some of the candidates were kind of promoting their competitors as much as themselves and um, others saying, look, I don't mind which of us wins, you know, either me or my uncle or me and my nephew. It's all good. So, yeah, really warm, real feeling of Tanga, And as I say, different from, uh, you know, most other candidate meetings that, uh, that these candidates have been to. What new came out of the hui, Craig? Well, look, there's a universal desire really amongst the candidates to change their culture at council tables. So they want to bring tikanga into the council chamber they say, look, councils are, are Eurocentric and they want to make them more phonocentric. So they talked about how, um, you know, a lot of people have told them they're uncomfortable going into council spaces. So they want to do what they can to make sure Fano can approach council and access all the services and the resources, you know, supposedly available to all. Glenn Katu, who's a candidate for Tatai Tonga, a seat in South Taranaki, said councillors need to upskill themselves into our Māori. And he said, quote, if Māori councillors around the table can work together and show them how Māori operate, show them how the whānau thinking that we bring to decision-making, then we'll make change. But look, there wasn't only a challenge to councils, also to iwi leadership. The chairs of the Taranaki iwi organisations called the meeting of candidates. And uh, Peter Moyer, who, who's seeking reappointment as a Māori representative on the regional council committees, said, look, he'd become hōha trying to discuss major issues with iwi chairs. And he said, again, quote, I don't know what the iwi stance is on three waters. I don't know what the iwi stance is on the RMA reform or on the review of the Local Government Act. I don't know because we haven't been communicating. And um, Moya, who said, look, in the next election, the every organisation should uh, support Māori candidates brave enough to stand. And also uh, Te Aroha Hohaia, who is confirmed as a councillor for Te Hawara, also asked um, how you're going to support those who do get elected. Yeah, OK, so a bit of a challenge. So how did iwi leaders respond? Sort of a sense of a little bit on the back foot, but the chief executive of Takawi or Taranaki iwi organisation said they'd be calling together the successful candidates, kind of like a, a regional caucus, I guess. He said, look, a lot of those kaupapa that we're dealing with in RMA, Three Waters, Health Boards, they're all live issues. And, and uh, the iwi organisations are still really trying to figure out where their position is on a lot of those things. But also the uh, the chair of Te Kota'itanga or Te Atiawa, Liana Potu, said... Look, this is the first time that we have collectively got together to try and get Māori into local government. She said their um, selection processes hadn't been as perfect as they hoped, but, you know, they're learning along the way. So I don't know if you remember, Nick, last time we talked, Wariaoka Wano had told me that the region's eight iwi had fought hard for these seats, and it's important to maximise the gains. So the eight iwi had been um, strategising across the region, just quietly amongst their networks and at Hui and Tangi and kind of shoulder-tapping suitable candidates. Now, that hasn't quite worked out the way they wanted. In three of the five seats, um, alternative candidates have popped up, 
and they are competing against those those iwi um candidates if you like mm. and you know we're getting close to to maori wards becoming a, a reality right so what are people where are people at with this what are they thinking yeah, after sort of a troubled road, right? Um, look, I think there's been a sea change here in Taranaki. For example, back in 2014, you might remember New Plymouth became a bit of a flashpoint over Māori wards when the then Mayor, Andrew Judd, led his councillors to agree to set up a Māori ward year, but then a public referendum overturned that with 83% of the participants in the referendum rejecting it. And then um, Judd copped a whole lot of really quite abusive backlash in the supermarket with the children, all sorts of nasty stuff. And he realised, oh, hell, I'm on a hiding to nothing here. So he didn't stand again in 2016. But now, you know, fast forward to 2020, eight of the 10 contestants for the mayoralty in New Plymouth say the wards are an effective way to boost participation by Māori as voters and as candidates. So that makes that group of New Plymouth mural candidates the country's fourth strongest believers in Māori wards. That's from the nationwide survey that um, local democracy reporting ran on the mayoral candidates across the country. So, uh, you know, across the nation, an average of only 50% of the mayoral candidates are agreeing that the wards are effective, quarter don't agree, and a quarter don't know. But look, there's, there has been one oddity that's kind of arisen in the new system. In the Stratford district, Māori roll voters get absolutely no say this election. The Māori ward has been filled by the, um, you know, the Iwi's kind of strategic nominee. So um, he stood unopposed, so he's an automatic play. And likewise, Stratford's mayor has been re-elected unopposed. So if you're on the Māori roll, just put your feet up, really. Uh, and similar for Taranaki Regional Council. Again, the single Māori ward's been filled by the sole candidate, so no vote for Māori ward electors. And of course, elected councillors choose the chair of regional councils, so no vote there either. Craig Ashworth, our local democracy reporter in Taranaki. That's what you're trying to say. You're trying to say, let's get down to business. It's business time. It's business. It's business time. Oh, yes, it is. It's business time. And joining us for business time is Giles Beckford. Uh, morning up. Kia Nick. Look, let's start with... Um, we've, we've got a couple of topics here, but let's start with the hot topic, Giles, if we can. Uh, the U-turn in the UK. We've just spoken to Ali J about it. Can you place it? We're going to talk to Nicola Willis about her policy or her party's policy soon, which uh, on the surface at least would appear to have some similarities. But can you tell us whether it does or not and whether you think it's going to be as popular or, well, more specifically unpopular? Uh, I won't hazard a guess at the second. Uh, At the first, we've got to say that the uh, national plan, as we understand it, is still pretty vague and uh, they've certainly not made the mistake uh, that the Tory government did in the UK which was um, just to throw it out there uh, and to hell with the consequences and ideology rules and and the rest of it is quite clear they just hadn't consulted with people and even within their own party um, so clearly as a trust uh, sort of you know, admitted perhaps we could have laid the ground a bit better. In other words, you've got to give plenty, plenty of detail, plenty of advance notice in these things. And uh, you know, the thing that undid it in financial market terms, at least, was that cutting taxes uh, without actually giving details on where you're going to get the money from is a loser. It, you know, it, it racks up the markets. People have, you know, have really lost money 
uh, in the past two weeks because of what uh, the Tories have done. Uh, you know, the U-turn won't undo that. It may restore some of their credibility. Uh, it has calmed down markets in all likelihood. But in the end, people are going to say, well, you know, how, how can we trust you? And that's exactly the issue uh, that we'll, we will be confronted with next year when the government and National put forward their spending plans. If National follows through with its plans to cut taxes, they're going to have to detail uh, quite clearly where the money is coming from either in borrowing, which is not a sensible idea, uh, or in cutting of expenditure. Uh, And they've given us some broad hints as to where that might be uh, in the current government's uh, spending plans, what things they would get rid of. Um, And it comes down to that thing. The numbers have to add up. They have to be credible. Uh, And this is really, there are lessons in the way the Tories did it for National if they follow that policy. Yeah, so I guess the key difference at this stage at least would appear to be in the UK context they have they have charged into this right. Uh, consequences be damned for want of a better word I, I think is roughly what you said. Whereas with the National Party here, well we're simply not sure yet. No, we're not sure, but they have given us some hints. For instance, they would say that the money that's been set aside for the uh, TVNZ, RNZ merger would go, Three Waters would go. Uh, if we look back at the last lot of tax cuts that were um, put forward by National and how they were funded, uh, if you remember, they cut contributions to the superannuation fund, which was uh, a couple of billion dollars uh, a year. That was in the context of recovery after the uh, Christchurch earthquake. Um, and, of course... Um, There was reduced spending in some areas of uh, public services uh, and Labour made much of that, uh, saying we've got this enormous deficit of hospitals that leak, that are falling over, uh, roads that don't work, uh, you know, policies that were put forward or projects put forward where no money was uh, uh, set aside. So... Um, those are the sorts of issues that can arise, uh, you know, when you're looking to construct tax policies or tax cuts. Mm. Hey, thanks, Charles. Uh, Charles Beckford there with our business news. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report coming up at 10 to 7. And now turning to how the New Zealand dollar is being traded around the world. It's currently at 57 US cents, 87 Australian cents, 58 euro cents, 50 British pence. 4.03 yuan and 82 Japanese yen. Right, Uh, we are heading to the US where at least 83 people have died as Hurricane Ian wreaks havoc through its path. The storm is now heading to Washington DC and to New York. Meanwhile, a new weather system, that's Hurricane Orlean, is strengthening as it heads towards western Mexico. Joining us now is our US correspondent, Bevan Hurley, in New York. Morena, Bevan. Morena, Nick. Hey, look, let's uh, start with Ian. What's the latest on recovery efforts, particularly, obviously, around Florida? Yeah, so it's now been four days since Hurricane Ian made landfall in southwest Florida, and as we've all seen from those um, just 
awesome images coming through. Uh, it completely wiped out neighbourhoods. Um, it uh, turned streets into rivers. And rescue crews are still trying to reach survivors who they believe may be trapped um, in, in those sort of hard-to-reach areas. Um, as you mentioned, um, Nick, officials have confirmed that um, at least 80 people have died. Um, and many of those deaths have come from drowning and have sadly disproportionately affected elderly people who were unable to escape the wrath of the hurricane's path and make up you know, a significant part of the population in that part of Florida. Um, officials have stressed that they're um, very much still in the rescue phase of this operation. And this morning they were trying to reach 200 people who remain trapped on Sanibel Island just off that uh, southwest coast after the causeway connecting the island to the mainland was completely um, washed away. Um, and of course, those recovery efforts are being complicated by the fact that many of these um, people who need rescuing are not uh, the most mobile, may have some health conditions. So they're really trying to do whatever they can to um, get to those people and, and give them the, the care and attention that they need. Um, and as we you know, start to look at the cleanup costs and the um, devastation that has been wrought, it is, it is thought that Ian is going to come in as the second most expensive and deadly storm ever to hit the mainland US after Hurricane Katrina, Nick. Yeah, and how are people in Florida coping, <clears throat> Bevan? What's the mood like there? They are, you know, getting on as best they can. Um, temperatures are reaching uh, the high 20s, 28 degrees Celsius in Naples today. So as you can imagine, it's, it's pretty uncomfortable when you haven't got any sort of electricity um, or air conditioning. And of course, um, you know, things like food, uh, pets uh, are suffering as well. Um, so a lot of people in that part of Florida have been asking, you know, for emergency supplies of ice and other ways to keep themselves and their um, things in their, in their household cool. Um, the current goal is to restore power by Sunday to customers whose power lines and other electrical infrastructure has been knocked out. And of course, the floodwaters have only just started to recede in some areas. And so, um, you know, they're sort of battling, um, you know, multiple crises at the same time. Um, we are starting to hear some um, really encouraging um, stories of survival. Um, one resident in, in the city of Naples um, told how he dove into murky debris-filled waters to go and save his 84-year-old mother who lived a few blocks away and whose legs were amputated and, and, and she has to use a wheelchair. And so, you know, I think people are doing what they can for each other as, as they wait for, you know, federal and state officials to, to come and help them out. Yeah, and as is often the case in these situations, right, people are, are looking for some accountability. And I see a headline here uh, about officials facing some criticism basically around their decision to, in Florida, only issue these evacuation notices 24 hours in advance. That's right. So in Lee County, which really bore the brunt um, of, of Hurricane Ian, um, authorities um, issued a mandatory evacuation order just 24 hours before it made landfall. And this is despite um, emergency um, officials in neighbouring counties issuing um, those evacuation orders much sooner. And so Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, has been taking some flack over this. He has um, defended um, those officials saying that, you know, we uh, the, the hurricane did change course relatively late on its projected path and that, you know, they're kind of limited in what they can do to force residents to leave their homes. And so they are sort of pushing back at that narrative. But I think you're right, there is going to be a lot of questions asked about whether or not, you know, 
those officials were um, as prepared as they could have been for what was very much an expected, um, you know, hurricane, uh, if, if not, you know, this time, then, then at some point. And obviously, well, literally on the horizon is Hurricane Orlean, right? What can you tell us about this new storm, I guess, as it compares to Ian? It's, it's on its way to Mexico, isn't it? Yeah, so it has lost some of its punch, um, but Hurricane Orling does remain a dangerous Category 3 storm as it heads towards Mexico's northwest Pacific coast, and it's expected to um, reach landfall any, any moment now, and it's 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 um, striking um, those tourist towns in that area, um, Mazatlan and San Blas are expected to bear the brunt of it. It's uh, had peaked as high as 215 kilometres an hour in, in, in its eye, but has reduced slightly to 100 185 uh, kilometres an hour in the last few hours. And um, the storm was moving over the island of Islas Marias, a former prison colony, uh, which has been turned into a tourist draw. And the island is sparsely populated, and so they don't think there's going to be too much danger to um, people and infrastructure there. But as soon as it does hit that um, mainland, um, you know, there is going to be significant risk. Whether or not it, it reaches the same sort of uh, levels as Hurricane Ian, I would doubt it just because of the... Um, it's an area that's not quite so densely populated and it has had um, a few days of warning to prepare. So hopefully, you know, even amongst all the heavy rain and and uh, severe winds, that the people can sort of fend it off slightly more um, effectively. Yeah, hoping for the best. Uh, thanks, Bevan. Bevan Hurley uh, joining us there from New York. It's just about 20 minutes to six. I'm Nick Trubridge and you're with First Up on RNZ National. Still to come, National's Deputy Nicola Willis accuses the Prime Minister of political mischief-making by comparing her party's tax policy to the UK Tories' disastrous tax package. And we hear from a New Zealand charity helping on the ground in Ukraine. The professionals of Morning Report are up after six, and for a quick preview is Corin Dan. Morena. Uh, good morning. Good morning, everybody. Uh, yes, a busy show this morning. Got an interesting story from Phil Pennington, our reporter, looking at GNS modelling that has found the earthquake risk for large parts of the country has actually ridden, uh, risen. So, some new, uh, new work that's been done on that. We'll have more on that. Auckland principals worried about senior students dropping out of school over the holidays. There's been a big drop off in people leaving for what is a very tight employment market, of course. Uh, and continued uh, reaction to that transport decision in Auckland, Nick, that is, uh, it's not gone down very well, I have mm, to say. No. Uh, this, this decision around the train seems extraordinary. Such a long period of time to cause. Uh, such disruption uh, and we will go to the UK where surprise surprise there has been a U-turn not a full yeah. U-turn no, no, that's but it was the, coming it was, not, it was it's, coming it's not a U-turn Corinne. it's all good it's not a U-turn <laughs> oh at all. really hey yeah. um, hey quick question for you we're asking for school holidays activity uh, activities what did a young Corinne Dan do in his school holidays what do, oh, I probably just hung out down at the local school and uh, yeah. kicked around and with mates and played cricket and Cause trouble, cause trouble down just there in Christchurch. Just to do nothing, really. But yeah, 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 leave the house. Leave the house. Yeah, Once yeah, you're yeah. old enough, yeah. Leave, leave mum alone, for sure. That's right. Um, hey, thanks, Corin. Morning report.
is up in just under 15 minutes' time. Uh, And we are going to go to Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis now this week. We discussed Nationals' uh, opposition, rather, to a proposed law aimed at reducing the harm caused by alcohol and why voter turnout in our local government elections is so low. But we started with tax. It's a tax TV programme this morning. And the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern saying it's fair to compare Nationals' plan to reduce taxes, including removing the top tax bracket altogether, that sounds familiar, with the UK Tory party's disastrous $85 billion policy, which put the markets into a bit of a spin. Look, that's nothing but political mischief-making from the Prime Minister. The truth is National remains committed to the principles of fiscal responsibility, returning the books to balance and maintaining prudent levels of net debt. In fact, Labor have increased spending by 70% while they've been in office. That's $41 billion more in tax they're collecting. And their spending amounts to around 30 times the modest size of National's proposed adjustments to tax thresholds. So it's an unfair comparison and one that's simply not borne out by the facts. Tell us how it's different to Truss's Tory governments then. Well, for a start, National's proposal is that we would deliver our modest programme of tax reduction in adherence with the fiscal and economic conditions. That is to say, where the UK is right now, they've made the decision to do a huge amount of spending, borrowing and tax reduction at the same time. National simply doesn't think those three things should go together. And secondly, the context in New Zealand is that we have a government that is doing huge amounts of spending. So National believes that by better prioritising projects, driving more value and results from existing spending and reducing waste and backroom bureaucracy, we will be able to fund our proposed tax reduction. Mm. You've talked about Mm. on, I believe it was on Morning Report last week, uh, inflation basically being the biggest handbrake, right, the biggest burden, and, and the government having contributed to that. But won't tax cuts just drive demand? We do think inflation is a real scourge. It's at the highest levels in 32 years. And what we have also seen is advice from the government's own advisers, the Treasury, saying that given the choice between increasing spending or reducing taxation, increasing spending is more inflationary. We would want to ensure that any tax reduction that we are doing does not fuel inflation. That's an important principle for us. There's been a lot of discussion, obviously, about the top tax rate, right, about 39%. When would that go? Well, we've said our first priority is to adjust uh, existing tax thresholds for inflation to ensure that people in the squeezed middle get tax reduction, and we would unwind the top tax rate after that in accordance with the fiscal and economic conditions. When would it be? In our first term. Okay. Chloe Swarbrick, obviously there's this uh, alcohol harm minimisation bill. Why is national voting against that, at least initially? Well, there was a consensus in our caucus that while people have a range of views on regulation of alcohol and the steps we could take to minimise harm, this bill had more problems than it did solutions. There's the issue of when you ban alcohol sponsorship from sports clubs, where do they get the revenue that they lose, for one thing? For another thing, we thought that abolishing the appeals process for when local authorities make decisions could potentially lead to some unfair uh, results for some communities. What's wrong, 
though particularly wrong with giving local councils the the power to control alcohol sales, do you think? Well, local uh, authorities do have that power, and what this bill seeks to do is to remove the ability to appeal decisions that local authorities make. And just as uh, in any judicial process there is the right of appeal, we didn't see a strong case for removing that here. You mentioned sports clubs and how they would make up a potential loss in revenue. Are you, are you talking grassroots sports clubs? Because you don't really see many grassroots sports clubs taking funding from alcohol companies, do you? It's more your super rugby, your your NPC type stuff. Well, I think there is a question here about where the funding would be recovered from um, all sports clubs. There's also a question of fairness. What sports clubs are you talking about? Are you talking at a a grassroots level? Can you name any that are are actually sponsored by uh, beverage companies? Well, there is a question for us about if there's going to be money taken away from whether it's large sports clubs or small sports clubs, how will that money be uh, replaced? There's also the issue of fairness, which is if sports clubs can no longer have alcohol advertising, would the same thing apply to musical events, cultural events and others? Because presumably, if the principle here is harm reduction, advertising at those forums would be just as harmful. What was the last sports club that you saw sponsored by alcohol advertising? I think I was went to a, a sports game recently at the stadium and there's typically uh, alcohol sponsorship there. But you're talking professional, right? Yes, in that case it is professional. Well, they can surely find the shortfall, can't they, you would have thought? Well, you'd have to ask them, but it is certainly a legitimate question to ask about, well, if that source of funding is taken away, where does the funding come from instead? Why not let your MPs vote according to their conscience on this? Uh, Well, on this issue, we were able to find a consensus as a caucus. Okay, uh, moving on. Uh, Local body elections, obviously, I believe tomorrow, early this week anyway, is the the latest uh, that you can have your postal vote posted so it counts. Um, turnout hasn't been great, has it? I mean, it's it's sort of on par with last year, depending on where you look. Certainly in Auckland, it's sort of on par with last year. The postal system, what do you think of it? Time to scrap it? Do you use it? Well, I, I have to say, when I put my voting forms on the envelope, and then I had to turn to my husband and say, well, where am I going to post this? Where's the latest post box? And I think many of us are out of the habit of posting things. And I think that um, probably does introduce some inconvenience for some. Uh, and I think there's definitely questions for uh, us to answer about what is keeping voter turnout so low in local uh, body elections. It's a worry. Democracy requires good turnout for it to be uh, healthy and functioning. So following these elections, there's typically a select committee inquiry by parliament, and I would suggest that that inquiry should look very carefully at what additional steps New Zealand could take to encourage turnout at local body elections. Is there anything, like you're a voter yourself obviously, so is there anything that you sort of think straight off the bat might help the situation? As you say, these councils at the end of the day make pretty large decisions and arguably decisions that day to day affect um, many of us just as much as they do central government ones. Well, look, I am interested in this idea of is there a case for an election day in the same way as we have with general elections? I think that warrants some investigation. I've seen people suggesting that online voting has merits. My concern there is um, certainly in 2019 when Parliament looked at that, the Director General of the GCSB raised security concerns about the susceptibility to interference. So I guess there's a question there of have 
of are there alternatives to online voting which would make voting easier for people and you know i'm open to the ideas there what about incentives i don't know 50 dollars off your rates bill if you vote i think that's going a bit far but you know what i'd say to people is get out there and vote because it's definitely worth more than 50 dollars to you uh, in terms of the impact that local government has on the shape of our communities it's well worth having your say That was Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis and just a wee note that was recorded before the UK Tory party's announcement this morning on its tax policy. Right, Russia's campaign in eastern Ukraine is suffering setbacks. This comes as Moscow was forced to withdraw troops from the strategic town of Liman. Former Mayor of Tauranga, Tenby Powell, has been on the ground in Ukraine with his charity Care getting humanitarian aid and refugees out. So I asked him for an update on the Ukrainian takeover of Liman. Three things have happened, quite significant things, since we talked last some weeks ago now, really. And one is, and you're alluding to it now, is the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which has been accurately described by many as and it certainly continues to be this way, as a lightning assault that started in you know, the first half of September. It's absolutely decimated Russian defences in northeast Ukraine. And we have seen as much territory reclaimed in a few short days, really, as the Russians had captured in seven months. And just to quantify that, the Ukrainians have recovered about 6,000 square kilometres over which Russian troops have been totally routed, leaving behind them tanks, artillery, vehicles of all description, including infantry fighting vehicles and even small arms and personal equipment. And we're seeing this, we saw it in Izium, we're seeing it in Liman, and the Ukrainians are constantly posting memes thanking the Russians for being Europe's biggest contributor to their war effort and providing them by providing them with so many weapons. So that's the first key thing, that the, the counteroffensive it has been extraordinary. It continues to be extraordinary. And I suspect that it will continue like this to get ahead of the winter. The, the second thing is the sabotage of the Nord Stream 1 and 2 gas pipelines. This, of course, is the, the pipeline that stretches some 1,200 kilometres under the Baltic Sea from the Russian coast near St. Petersburg to northeastern Germany. That has had a very polarising effect, I think, not just on Western Europe, but on Western countries generally. And as a consequence of that, and this is the last point, we're now seeing greater Western alignment, not just Western European alignment, but alignment by Western countries as a consequence of that, probably that one act, because it's brought the war directly into their homes here in Western Europe. And, you know, I include US, Canada, Australia and New Zealand in that as well. New Zealand's effort, of course, is focused purely on military training, but we're now starting to see both the funding and the supply of heavy weapon systems like we never have before. And that is, it's going to be very significant ahead of winter. It's going to aid the Ukrainians in their endeavours with their counteroffensive to maintain that momentum. And my pick is that they're going to continue to push well into the Donbass. Yeah, and just on the counteroffensive, Tenby, and the I guess the regaining of territory, how does it translate to the mood of Ukrainians on the ground that you come into contact with in terms of morale, I suppose? What well, morale is high, as you can imagine. In the areas that we're now operating in, which are newly liber- liberated areas, we need, on most occasions, military escorts, particularly in the first instance, 
and that was the case in Isium. You know, we passed checkpoint after checkpoint, and the morale is really genuinely very high. They feel that they've got the, the advantage, and, and I suspect that that's, well, it's absolutely right in terms of their counteroffensive, but I think they also know that they've got support coming, and coming in the form of significant weapon systems from that they haven't really had access to before, and this will assist them greatly ahead of the winter. And I guess just to change tack slightly, 10B, and sort of in contrast to what we've just talked about in terms of uh, high morale or, or rising morale, there was a post on your one of your social media feeds, and I note at the top of it you said that you pondered whether or not to actually create that post at all. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, of course, that is the grave side of Isium. Yeah, I did ponder, uh, Nick, because... You know, for some people, these things are very disturbing, and I undenied about whether to put my own photographs there. There's, there's so many photographs on this. And I decided that, as I wrote, I felt we had those of us that had been there, that had seen this, this horrific area, really. I felt we had an obligation or a duty to tell the story. And I tried to describe it in as most benign terms as I possibly could, given the platforms, the social media platforms that it's on. But it was it was deeply moving. I think a number of us are still trying to process how these things happen in 2022, why they have to happen, what the justification is. I can't think that there's any in the minds of anyone that would bury, for example, multi-generational families, grandchildren, parents and grandparents in a very shallow and small hole. But that's what happened there in Azim. Yeah, and then on the other hand, and I suppose this speaks to how how dynamic the situation is over there, we got news last week of these Russian referendums held in captured territories, referendums on annexation, obviously. Reaction to that from Ukrainians, again, who you come into contact with daily? Yeah, well, I said we're talking about Kherson, Zaporizhia, Luhansk, Donetsk. They just think it is what it is. It's a complete sham. It's it's meaningless. But what I think it has done, that and the, the success of the counteroffensive, is it's really focused the Ukrainians on winning this war. And there is a belief, they believe, and I think it's probably right, that the only pathway to peace is victory. To not win this will mean that there will be unrest in Europe, not just in Ukraine, and not just in Donbass in Ukraine either, for years, if not decades to come. And Zelensky and all his speeches today is focusing on winning back all the territory and including Crimea. Now, it's only been very recent that he's mentioned Crimea, but they now believe that they can take it all back. And I think it's important that people understand that the people that we, the, 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 the citizens, the Ukrainian citizens in those towns and cities that we come into contact with, that we're providing humanitarian aid to, and in a number of cases evacuating out of those areas, they're thrilled that they've been liberated by the Ukrainians. There is no doubt in their mind that they are Ukrainian, that they want to be a part of Ukraine, and they want to be able to live their own lives under a democratic system that Ukraine offers them, and not under the dictatorship that they had experienced these past seven months under Russian occupation. That's it from us, Tembi Power there from KiwiCare. One bit of feedback here, f- helpful summaries of what's happening in the UK and Japan, useful on kettles as well. Yep, I'm off home to clean my kettle on that note. Thanks for listening. Here's Morning Report. <laughs>